arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. In what could be the biggest honor code violation in decades, more than 70 West Point cadets are accused of cheating on a math exam while learning remotely last spring. The cadets, 72 freshmen and one sophomore, caught when they all made the same mistake on one part of the calculus exam. Hmm, what does the West Point scandal have to do with the Club Max murder? I'm Robert P. Fitton. In Episode 2, Nigel Kent, Dean of Students at Hamilton College, is about to out Clarence Moody, an elite and obnoxious student for a bad behavior. And what of the low rider car that's been stalking Matthias Jones? To add to Jones's troubles, the former Hamilton coach, incompetent Lark Larson, thinks he's going to help Jones coach the football game on Saturday. And someone is lurking out there trying to prevent the investigation of Quintel's murder. Not looking good either for Matthias Jones's star quarterback, who happened to fall in love with a hooker. Episode 2 of the Club Max Murder Matthias Jones series is on the air. Chapter 6. The long satin drapes pulled back. The sun warmed Jones's face through the frosted corners of the rectory's breakfast room windows. The pervasive smell of bacon and eggs had beckoned him downstairs earlier. Gallagher's housekeeper prepared a large breakfast, and Jones ate between phone calls. Nigel Kent called promptly at 7.30 and was concerned how Joe's murder charge might affect the school. You know, the Fletchers regard this image of their school. While the woman was stabbed and Joe was holding her, according to witnesses, I want to believe him. In her business, there could have been dozens of suspects. He pushed his fork into the last clump of scrambled eggs and crunched the bacon between his teeth. Well, I should make you aware of something, Matthias. What's that? asked Jones, chewing. Joe and his roommate, uh, last spring, an incident took place. Jones looked at the bright red and yellow leaves outside Gallagher's kitchen window. Incident? Yes, I am sure Clarence got over it. Clarence Moody. They didn't talk for some time, said Nigel. Why not? He swished the tart orange juice into his mouth. Nigel, cut to the chase, will you? Well, Joe spotted Clarence with a pilfered examination. Mind you, it was not an official test, but I put Clarence on warning, and his possession of the exam is now on his transcripts. Why, that arrogant prima donna, he stole a test. No, an alumnus sent it to him, Matthias. A long argument took place in the dorm. Moody mentioned to me that Joe threatened him. Oh, come on, Moody exaggerates, Nigel. Maybe. We handled the whole thing internally. Moody could have lost his engineering department scholarship. Oh, that's a great loss for mankind. I gave him another chance. I only mentioned this in light of the woman's murder. I don't want what I'm telling you to get out. Gallagher, putting on his collar, passed in the hallway. I do believe I'll be asking Mr. Moody a few pertinent questions, though. Thank you, Nigel. Yes, Nigel, goodbye. He looked up at Gallagher. Yes, Nigel, no, Nigel. Stick it in your ear, Nigel. 
Gallagher smiled and poured himself a large cup of black coffee and set it on the table. So, what's new, Matthias? Jones scooped some crunchy granola cereal from his bowl and washed it down with more orange juice. Keep this under your collar there, father, but Joe caught his roommate cheating last spring. Did he hold that against Joe? That is exactly what I will ask this little snut when I meet with him. Apparently they had an argument, and Moody says Joe threatened him. Coco, I have to assume this Quintel thing has something to do with you, because I've called you seven times. You need to get back to me because my player is being railroaded. Jones stared at his cell phone. Where is Coco? Well, I have two calls into him also. Do you know how many times I've told him not to engage in prostitution? You don't know whether he did or he didn't. What did he say? He denies it. Around 8.30, Gallagher spun the Lincoln from the rectory parking lot. Jones pointed as they passed it the same low-rider car from football practice, now parked down the street near the church's parish hall. There he is. Who? Who? Who are you talking about? Yesterday, at practice, that car kept cruising along the fence. Slow down, Jim. I want to get the plate number. Back up. Gallagher skidded to the right and whipped back towards St. Bart's stone edifice. Jones pushed down the window button and cold air filled the car. Gallagher slowed at the corner, but Jones saw an empty parking space where the low rider was parked less than a minute ago. We missed him. Who's following me? And better yet, why are they following me? Gallagher parked the Lincoln in front of the massive police station fortress. That car is too obvious, said Jones as he got out, and Gallagher locked the doors automatically, but the driver's window buzzed down. They must know I'm looking into the Gina Quintel murder. Well, go see your buddy Bosco. Buddy. Father, that is a low blow. Thank you. I try. Gallagher looked toward the station's oak doors and then back at Jones. Call me if you need my help. You mean with low riders? A word to the wise, Matthias, as I always tell you when you get involved with things like this, be careful. Gallagher raised his brows, twisted his lips, and nodded. Understood. I mean it. Gallagher waved and zoomed away from the station. Jones trotted up the steps and opened the station door. He headed directly to the front desk and asked for Kevin Phillips. While he waited in the busy first-floor lobby, he stared at the wire mesh skylights above, and deep in thought, he wondered who would frame Joe Sabota. Maybe Gina Quintel had originally hustled Joe, and somebody else had saw him as an easy mark. Yet Joe had caught the pompous Clarence Moody with a stolen test. Moody was arrogant enough to frame Joe. Matthias, you look like you've uh, got the world on your shoulders. Phillips wore a green checkered sport coat and his light brown hair and boyish face gave him a younger appearance. Lost in thought? Well, I'm lost all right. Hey, Kevin, where did Bosco work before he came to Prince William? Well, he had a good record in Philadelphia, said Phillips, smiling. Yeah, criminal record. Did Dom hire him? asked Jones. Yes, he did. Look, I know Sabota is the backbone of your team. That's not it. The kid is innocent, Kevin. I think he was framed. A setup. Give me the evidence and I'll go after it. I have nothing and that's what's starting to really get me livid. I can't even concentrate on Saturday's game. No side road theories, nothing. Is Locke Larson still uh, going to help you coach from retirement? 
not just coaching, Locke seems to think he knows everything about everything. Jones winced as he thought about Locke's bumbling escapades. He called me and offered his help to try and clear Sabota. Phillips grinned. That was magnanimous of him. At least Bucky Driscoll has no idea what's going on here, and he's a thousand miles away in Florida. Just like Locke, he likes to put his two cents into everything. I see individuals like that all the time. As a matter of fact, one of the witnesses to this murder, Mr. Daniels, fancies himself as an investigator. So I heard. Another hand in the porridge. Kevin, do you really think Joe killed this hooker? I don't know. I think he came into that apartment, like he said. Then he panicked. He left town. He was in some motel outside of Boston. I think he was pretty scared. That doesn't look good. On the surface, it looks like he really did it, said Jones. True. I think we have a number of avenues here. Club Max is the starting point. If I could only find Coco Stefani. We have checked his Crescent Street apartment. We have checked everywhere in town. He's not here. He's left the area. That is not good. And I think Club Max is the starting point for the murdered woman. Gina Quintel and Club Max. Phillips smiled. Right on both counts. Just another note. Joe's parents have spoken with L.G. Bentley. He's going to talk to Herbert about posting bond. Well, L.G. can do it. He has the connections. What do you say we go out to Covington Arms? Take a look around. The scene of the crime. That sounds good to me. I have to get that kid off. He's innocent. Phillips maneuvered the unmarked Navy sedan up to a dark stone apartment building with the name chiseled in the smooth gray block up top. Covington Arms. Here we are. I need to get this car washed. Tell me about the two witnesses. The guy I told you about sleeps most of the day. He works from 11 to 7. Very touchy. And a nicer older lady named Mrs. O'Toole on the first floor. She's presently out of town. I talked to her a long distance. Daniels lives on the second floor, just below the Quintel apartment. You talked to Joe's roommate, Clarence Moody? Jones debated whether to tell him about the stolen exam and the argument. He sounds very elite, for lack of a better word. Oh, then you've reached him. Yeah, I guess he knew nothing about Gina Quintel until he talked to Joe yesterday. Well, I find that hard to believe. Jones spotted another cruiser parked down the street. Phillips opened the door and grabbed a clipboard full of paper. Your guys? asked Jones, stepping onto the street. Yeah, I've got him searching everything around the apartments for that murder weapon. We swept the apartment for the usual. I'll tell you, Miss Quintel was a busy girl. The abundance of fabric threads, body hair, fingerprints, and other crud would make your head spin. Plus, Kip Bosco is wandering in and out. Well, that was a mistake. Dom sent him in here. Talk about not following procedure. Jones got out the passenger side. I'm sure that murder weapon is long gone. Jones crossed the sidewalk and passed a buffed maroon and white Etzel from the 1950s without a scratch or rust spot. Nice car. Yeah, Daniels owns it. Apparently he bought it new. Jones studied the arched side entrance. What went through Joe's head when he arrived by motorcycle on Tuesday night? Most of the other buildings along Lincoln Street were brick or vinyl-sided and not in the best condition. Is there a back entrance? Yeah, sure. Jones zipped his parker and followed Phillips down the sidewalk. He crunched his sneakers on a crushed bluestone alley. 
bordered by a weathered stockade fence with long mildew streaks. A single gray steel door was located under a sagging porch and several sinewy maples. Both men moved up the springy wood porch steps. Any prints here? Sabota grabbed the doorknob. His prints were on the door frame, the knob, and the inside knob. Like I said, there are hundreds of prints everywhere. Jones nodded, and Phillips opened the door. They moved into a white stucco hallway with scuffed baseboard and stairs. Phillips started up the musty staircase. Well, this place needs work. He turned at the second floor landing. Daniels lives here. He's very precise, and he keeps quoting Sherlock Holmes. Guy's a pain in the ass. He pointed to apartment 16's white door and mouthed Daniel's name. I need to speak with this guy. Well, you can, but I wouldn't recommend it. Why not? If you think you have problems with Bucky Driscoll and Locke Larson, this guy will drive you nuts. He's probably sleeping right now. I told you, he works at night. Jones held his knuckles about an inch from the door. Your choice, Matthias. Jones hit the wood hard. He pressed his lips and waited for Daniels. Then he rapped the door again. Phillips backed around the corner as a persistent whining like a cat waiting for its supper grew louder behind the door. Jones retreated as the door whipped back and a short gray-haired man in a navy velour bathrobe folded his arms and grimaced. You awoke me from a sound sleep. Who the hell are you? I'm Matthias Jones. Are you bragging or complaining? Depends. I don't appreciate your humor. Daniel straightened his hair with his fingers. Kindly state what you want and then promptly get the hell out. I'm investigating Gina Quintel's murder. Hmm. Well, I've already spoken with him. He pointed at Phillips. Well, Mr. Jones is the athletic director at Hamilton College. Ah, and Sabota is his big player. I really haven't had time for this, Jones. I need to get back to sleep. I plan to look into this entire matter myself. Oh, you're an investigator, asked Phillips sarcastically. Of sorts. He produced an odd smirk. I think sometimes more can be accomplished outside the official realm. <laughs> Don't trust the police, huh? asked Phillips. Daniels's face tightened. Let me tell you something, Lieutenant. If I have to talk with that fat Bosco one more time, I will file a complaint with the department. Well, Bosco is a boob. Well, that's the first intelligent thing anyone said. Okay, Jones, I'll talk to you, but not now. I need my sleep. Between feeding Mrs. O'Toole's cats and... She said she would check her message machines in Arizona. I don't know which cat food to feed which cat. That woman is the most confusing person. When would you like to meet? asked Jones. Don't call me. I'll call you. Good day. Daniel slammed the door and Phillips put his hand on Jones's shoulder. I warned you. Jones shook his head and trailed behind Phillips up the stairs. Yellow police tape was still stuck across apartment 17's door. Phillips tore off the tape and quickly pulled a key from his pocket. Like I say, we have gathered a ton of stuff. Clayton and his people will learn their pay this week. Phillips pushed open the cracked door and Jones moved inside. He immediately saw the deep blood stains across the white shag rug. Anything could have been caught in that rug. We went through it for two days, but feel free to get on your knees. Well, I just may do that. To his left was a glossy white bookcase strewn with a few hard-covered classics and a small living area beyond. 
He walked slowly around the bookcase, stared at the blood, now caked on the white shag pile. A silver stereo unit was housed within a simulated oak entertainment center behind tinted glass next to a small Sony TV. Jones pushed the remote and the news channel flipped on the screen. You see something I don't? asked Phillips. I just want to see what she last saw. Or maybe the killer. Maybe she watched the news channel and maybe she didn't. He shut off the set and pulled open the tinted doors and pushed the stereo's receiver button. To his surprise, WHMT resonated within the large floor speakers around the room. He quickly turned up the volume knob. Isn't that the college station over there in Hamilton? Yes, it is. A couple of students in the studio were talking about some new form of music Jones didn't understand. Joe could have put the stereo on, but remember what he said. He came in, he saw her, and he picked her up in his arms. When Daniels came in, he ran out. I'm going to take him for his word. Daniels has said the music was on. Oh. Jones moved toward a kitchenette beyond the bookcase, boarded by the bathroom, and a bedroom near an old white refrigerator and pink counter. He walked across the green linoleum squares and into the bedroom. The room was slightly larger than he thought. Satin red curtains and sunlit yellow shades covered the long frame windows. A king-sized bed with a brass headboard extended from the colorful, flowery wallpaper. The bed was stripped to the bare mattress. On the urethane end tables, silky shaded brass lamps with hanging tassels spread over books on current affairs and news magazines. This woman was no dummy. No, she wasn't. Bosco won't comment on what Coco knows. The fact that Coco's not answering calls tells me he knows something. Coco's very sly and very charming. Very rarely gets arrested. He has power and money. He's very generous from what Bosco says. You know him, Matthias. Phillips stood in the bedroom doorway. Matthias, you look around. I'll be in the front room. Sure, Kevin. Go ahead. Thanks. Jones stared at the rug. He bent down and pushed his fingers slowly through the heavy shag fiber around the bed. For five minutes, he scoured the area. He stood when Phillips called out from the front. Anything? Nothing. Jones walked to the doorway and gazed across the living room rug. Mind if I check out here, Kevin? No, go ahead. We're all done. Phillips went back to paperwork spread across the table. Jones dropped to his knees and moved his fingers like a comb through the soiled carpet pile. He located crackers scattered at random across the room, but nothing substantial until he sat on the rug and slowly scanned the room. He noticed a small lettered square stuck on the kitchen cabinet baseboard near the sink. What the hell is that? What are you talking about? Jones stood and crossed the kitchen. A half-inch adhesive square with the letter B boldly printed in the middle was attached to the linoleum. You better handle this one, Kevin. Phillips pushed back the chair and squatted next to Jones. He removed a small pocket knife and plastic bag from his coat. He says it doesn't pay to get down on your knees. Well, I don't know if Bosco could get on his knees. Phillips chuckled as he peeled back the sticker with his knife and slowly placed it in the plastic bag. Let me be on record, Matthias. Kip Bosco is here, but Homicide does the sweep through the murder scene. From the college station, Larry Resnick's voice resonated on the speaker. There's my starting quarterback. Hopefully, Resnick will keep his mouth shut about the murder and not broadcast it all over New Hampshire. What do you mean? 
I mean, he brought up the murder on his show. I had to call him and ask him to cool it. He and Joe never got along. Why not? Mutual girlfriend. Well, that's interesting. I need to talk to Resnick. Kevin, the kid's on my team. Uh, come on. I discount no possibility. Tomorrow night, I'm Larry Resnick, and I'll be playing jazz every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday night. That's the Larry Resnick Show. And Friday is listener call-in night. We'll see you then. Enjoy your evening. I don't think Joe will be playing on Saturday. Phillips studied the adhesive letter. I feel bad for Sabota. Kid has potential. Potential? He could have a pro career, and now he's ruined. Jones hovered in the bedroom doorway again. Kevin, was that bed made when you guys got in here? No, no, the sheets were all messed up. DNA testing will take a few weeks. What a mess that's going to be. Jones nodded and walked around the bed and studied the empty dresser top. What was on that dresser? Well, we found a wooden-handled brush, a handheld mirror, and a silver lipstick tube. Oh, and a takeout menu to Mario's Pizza Parlor on Canal Street. Chewing gum half open next to a bottle of heavily scented commotion perfume. On his notepad, Jones penned the items from the list. Phillips pointed to a replica of an antique brass and porcelain telephone. He found the phone had been wiped clean of print. Sabota says he didn't do it. Wiped clean. That's weird since Joe distinctly fled when he was discovered up here. Well, unless he wiped it before Daniels got up here. What about her phone records? Herbert's looking into that now. We need the courts for that. I'm sure those calls are as numerous as everything else in this place. I understand. Phillips leaned against the doorway and he thought before he spoke. We found her bra right next to the bed. I think she got out of bed, threw on a t-shirt and pants, no shoes or socks, and went out into the other room. Somebody killed her real quick. Threw the t-shirt. I don't know why Joe would be so naive about this woman. Maybe he found her with one of her Johns. You know, he walks in and discovers the guy. Lieutenant! Lieutenant! One of Phillips's men, followed by another man, held up a plastic evidence bag. Inside was a serrated steel knife with a large ivory handle. Phillips took the bag. Well, what have we got here? You better take a look at this, Lieutenant. Jones's stomach wrenched with anxiety when he saw the initials on the handle. J.M.S. J.M.S. Joseph Michael Sabota, said Jones in a low voice, but they heard him. I'm sorry, Matthias, said Phillips as he stepped to the counter phone. Jones fell back onto the sofa and listened in disbelief as Phillips informed Don Pacheco how Joe Sabota's knife was just found in a catch basin less than a hundred yards from the apartment building. Joe was either an accomplished liar, completely innocent, or he might have repressed the murder from his conscious thoughts. Chapter 7 Jonesy, I'm only going to tell you this once. If I'm hiding out, it's for a damn good reason. Why are you hiding out, Coco? I'm not saying, but what I am saying is that I value you as a friend. And as a friend, I'm telling you, don't try and find me. Is this about Gina Quintel? I gotta go. The line went blank. Jones wasn't quite sure why Coco was hanging out and if it had anything to do with Quintel. Nor was he sure 
if Coco was in the area or he was somewhere else. He sat on a worn, varnished oak bench outside the courtroom. Herbert Lane and his people were doing the building to arraign Joe Sabota for Gina Quintel's murder. Before he got the call from Coco, he had tried to locate Clarence Moody and the rest of Joe's friends in the dorm. Without background information, he'd never know the truth. Jones! He turned as a winded Kip Bosco trudged up the stairs. Jones's mind was still set on Coco's phone call. In Bosco's hand was a yellow piece of paper. Hey, buddy, you waiting for Herbert? <laughs> Dandruff was scattered across the shoulders of his maroon blazer, and his creased blue paisley tie was loosened at the neck. Did you come up here to bother me, Kip? Smarten up, coachy. He lifted his coffee cup, spilling it onto the floor tiles and onto his blue shirt. I've got good news for you. <laughs> Jones peered down the stairs for Herbert Lane. Oh, yeah, is that right? You resigning from the force, Kip? Bosco slapped the yellow paper in his hands. Here, take this. Kip, I really don't have time for this. Joe is about to be arraigned for Gina Quintel's murder. Jones unfolded the paper and studied a word process document from Herbert Lane's office, limiting his access to the investigation. An additional addendum allowed him to look into the Quintel murder, but only if he was supervised by Kip Bosco. Well, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. He can't do this. Oh yeah, smart boy, you violate that order and I can lock you up. And another thing, your boy Coco is long gone. Tell me something I don't already know. Bosco sipped from the coffee again, removed a donut wrapped in wax paper from his blazer pocket. The powdered sugar sprinkled onto his sport coat. So, if you got something to say to Coco about me, good luck in finding him. <laughs> Who does Herbert Lane think he is? Why don't you ask him? Here he comes. <laughs> As Bosco mashed the donut in his mouth, Jones peeked over his shoulder. He quickly scooted by Bosco and raced up the stairs. Joe Saboter, in his orange prison suit, walked behind Lane and was surrounded by a team of assistants, police personnel, L.G. Bentley, Strickland, and Kevin Phillips, a group of reporters tailed behind. Lane made no eye contact with Jones up the stairs. Get lost, Jones. I hope you don't think this little piece of paper is going to keep me off the Quintel case, Herbert. That is exactly what I think, said Lane as the court bailiffs opened the inner doors. Lane stopped and faced Jones. Jones thought Lane's toupee might slide off his large head when he wrinkled his brow. You're lucky I gave you that much. If it wasn't for Kevin and George, you'd be off this completely. I don't understand why they allow you in their investigations anyway. Well, I can't work with Kip Bosco. You keep forgetting, Jones. You're not a police officer, nor are you a private investigator. Well, you'd be surprised, Herbert. What is that supposed to mean? Lane entered the courtroom, and Jones nabbed Strickland before he went inside. George, do something about this working with Kip Bosco. Well, I can't do anything. You'll have to work with Bosco. Jones looked over to Bosco. The husky sergeant wiped his face with a handkerchief, stuck it back in his pants pocket, and slurped coffee as he moved over to Jones. Hey, buddy, what do you say we go inside and watch your boy get what's coming to him? <laughs> you know more about what happened in Club Max than you're saying, Kip. I don't know nothing. Jones winced and shook his head. 
Joe didn't kill that hooker. You don't know that. It's his knife. Come on. I'd say your boy got jilted and he lost his head. So it's good night, Irene. <laughs> Shut up, Kip. Give me one bit of evidence, Jones. You're the big investigator. They saw him in the apartment holding her. He killed her, Jones. Face up to it. I said, shut up. You know more about this than you're saying. There are other people involved. B.S., 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 said Bosco, the powdered sugar still in his mustache. Jones shook his head and moved into the courtroom. He slid into one of the wood side benches behind Strickland as the legal maneuvering took place near the judge's bench. He pondered everything in the case as he sat and stared at Joe. Joe's knife was stolen and used by somebody else. The person with Joe's knife would either have known Joe or was aware of the knife. Joe stood rigid now with LG. The black-robed judge asked him several technical questions, but LG provided the correct answers. Jones's thoughts centered on the students in the dorm. He could conduct that portion of the investigation without the interference of Kip Bosco. Bosco leaned over from the benches behind. Guilty, guilty. Jones spun around. Kip, I'm going to prove you wrong, and I'm going to prove that Lane is wrong. Fat chance. <laughs> he stuck a chunk of bubblegum into his mouth and started chomping. The judge pounded his gavel. I will have it quiet in my courtroom. Jones stood and nodded. Sorry, Your Honor. Bosco produced a staccato chuckle. Naughty, naughty, coachy. <laughs> you call yourself a cop? Kip tilted his head back and continued laughing. Oh, stop your pretending, Jones. You're just a college coach. Jones clenched his fist again as he stood. You're a jerk. The gavel smashed against the wood block again, but Jones headed out of the courtroom. Bosco was still laughing when he pushed open the courtroom doors. He moved over to the water fountain outside and splashed cool water on his face. If he stayed away from Bosco, he might learn the truth. Talking to Joe again would crystallize his information. He took out his notebook. Clarence Moody could help, but he also needed to talk to Daniels and call Mrs. O'Toole. Underlying the whole case was the missing Coco Stefani. In his side row theory, Coco had to be linked to Gina and possibly the underworld. Chapter 9 He descended the police station stairway, and when he reached the first floor, Daniels blabbed on a payphone along the polished marble wall. Jones skirted the crowd, convinced Joe was telling the truth, concerned the magnitude of the case might make him snap. Daniels had shed... Jan Daniels had shed his blue bathrobe for a distinctive red plaid blazer and a green linen tie. His gray hair was recently cropped. He lifted the receiver onto the hook and raised his left eyebrow as Jones approached. All right, Jones, I'm ready to help you. Excuse me? I said I'm ready to help you solve this crime. He looked Jones over as if he were inspecting for bugs or germs. What's the matter? You too proud to want my help? Well, I... The first thing we need to do is establish a motive. Motive, indeed, is the primary focus of this in any investigation. He pulled out a yellow line notepad from below the phone and jotted something on the sheet with his gold pen. Now, I suggest we begin with motive. I've read the reports. Oh, you have. 
I only wish I could have been in Holmes's position. Holmes? Jones, you call yourself an investigator and you know nothing of the great Sherlock Holmes? Jones shrugged his shoulders and opened his mouth to speak. In the speckled band, he tells Watson they were just in time to prevent some subtle and horrible crime. Well, look, Daniels, I don't know too much about Sherlock Holmes, but I dare say we are not in time to prevent anything, nor is the crime subtle. Daniels tucked the yellow pad under his arm and, with his back arched, walked toward the front doors. He raised his left brow again, and his voice possessed a tapering, condescending tone. Well, perhaps you should read Holmes. I didn't mean to insult you. Daniel stopped, but kept his back to Jones. I would appreciate any help in this case. Better we work together, said Daniels, abruptly turning. I question the knife being found near the scene of the murder. My powers of deduction would lend themselves to think that your football player would be smarter than that. Have you talked to Joe? No need to. I would rather rely on the powers of observation. You have a car? Yes, of course. Why? Can you give me a ride to Hamilton? I'd like to discuss what you saw the other afternoon and during the time leading up to the murder. Don't you own a car, Jones? It's in Hamilton, Jones said softly. What was that? I said it's in Hamilton. Can you give me a ride or not, Daniels? Let me get this right. You come to Prince William without your car. Correct. Daniels twisted his mouth around. Honestly, Jones, honestly, Jones, I shall give you a ride. We must discuss the case quickly. I only have a few hours before I have to go to work. I may take some vacation time if this gets interesting. I think I have 64, 68 days accumulated. Why don't you join Mrs. O'Toole in Arizona? Do you know that that woman spelled out on her answering machine to the world that she had left for Arizona? Why not put a sign in the window inviting someone to break into the apartment? Well, I heard the message. Jones motioned him across the station. After you, sir. Well, thank you, Jones. Daniels walked upright like an aristocrat, heading for the reviewing stand. Good. I was wondering how I was going to get back to Hamilton. The maroon interior of the Etzel was as pristine as the exterior, full of chrome and more spacious than Jones had thought. Daniels gripped the large plastic steering wheel with both hands as if he were actually part of the antique car. He pulled away smoothly and cautiously from the parking meters and merged into traffic. Jones ran his fingers over the smooth vinyl seats in the black metal dashboard. This is quite the car. Well, it's presently worth... $72,000. Oh, come on. Jones gazed across the extended hood. Daniels looked like an airline pilot as he scanned the road in the rearview mirror and then checked the gauges. And insured to the letter, I might add. What do you do? You work in a warehouse? asked Jones. Daniels' dashboard blinker made a popping noise and flashed bright green. I work in the warehouse, yes. We ship out electronic parts, thousands of them. I balance the books after the day's shift has gone home. Long after, believe me. The night shift is much more in tune to their work. Did you see him do it? asked Jones. Jones, if you are referring to the Sabota boy and the dead woman, the answer is no. 
And I've made that very clear, that this is not a reasonable assumption. It's not a reasonable assumption to think that he did kill the woman. What about Mrs. O'Toole? I called her on the phone, said Jones. Oh, God help you. And what about the knife? Did Joe have it upstairs? I didn't see any knife, and I assure you I scanned thoroughly for any weapon. Was Joe up there on a regular basis? Well, that's quite a different story, if you will. Daniels finally made the turn and brought the long car onto the side street. She had a number of, shall we say, clients. Jones turned and shook his head. It's faster if you cut in back of the cemetery and reach Devonshire, Devonshire Street. Jones, I've lived in Prince William my entire life. I don't need you telling me how to take shortcuts to the highway. Jones turned and noticed the blue and gold bound Sherlock Holmes books on the back seat. So you're a fan of the great sleuth himself. Yes, Holmes and I are old friends. Now, to answer your question, the Sabota boy was in Gina Kuntel's apartment quite often. But what I'm trying to tell you, Jones, is that there were literally dozens of men up there. Some serious, some not so serious. Well, let's start with the most serious besides Joe. A gentleman, if you can call him that, named Al. Who's Al? asked Jones as Daniels reached the highway. I didn't know about this shortcut. Trust me, Jones, trust me. Daniels grinned for the first time and steered onto Route 32 to ascend the Devonshire Hills back to Hamilton. Al lived here. Al lived in there off and on before Sabota. Now, Mrs. O'Toole said they were married. But let me give you a caveat right now. Do not, and I repeat, do not put one ounce of credence in what that woman says. So he could have done it, right? Yes, of course, he and everyone else. He and everyone else. The Etzel sped up the straight road at a rapid clip. This car really moves. <laughs> of course it does. We're not talking about one of those whiny little junk boxes they build now. The way I see it, Coco is the key, said Jones. Ah, Mrs. O'Toole again, an unreliable source. She said Coco wasn't paying Quintel as much as he should have, you know, to turn tricks. Oh, vulgar, I suppose that's what she did. What would Holmes say about that, Mr. Daniels? I think he would look for the facts, Jones, as we should. Agreed. Jones smiled and glanced out the side mirror. The black low rider from football practice had just crested the hill and was speeding in the outside lane. It's him! Who? Hit it, Daniels. Let's see what this crate can really do. I don't own a race car, Jones. If you want to stay alive, then I would make this a race car. Daniels pushed the accelerator to the floor, and the old car shot back toward Hamilton. But midway down the incline, the Etzel left the highway and was airborne for a few seconds. Daniels held the steering wheel tightly as they hit the asphalt and swerved across the highway. He approached the track developments on the outside of town and pumped the brakes. The low rider was almost at his bumper. How dare they come after my car like that? This guy was stalking me, Daniels. I know he was, yelled Jones as the low rider bumped the Etzel, throwing Daniels against the wheel and Jones hit the dash. Why, that son of a bitch! Daniels pushed the brakes again as the low rider neared the Etzel. 
the long barrel of a handgun pointed through the open passenger window. With a quick flash, the first shot shattered Daniels's rear window. Both men ducked as two more bullets punctured the driver's door, and Daniels skidded to a stop. The low rider's tires squealed and peeled out at high speed back up the hill toward Prince William. Jones held Daniels' wrist across the seat. Are you all right, Daniels? This is all your fault, Jones. Daniels sat up and looked out the driver's window. My dear, sweet, innocent car. Listen, they were after you as much as me. Jones finally sat up. Cold air blew through the jagged hanging glass and the low rider disappeared over the Prince William side. Both men opened the Etzel's doors in unison. Jones rounded the car. Two clean three-inch bullet holes had penetrated the door. You're lucky to be alive, Daniels. That was original paint! Daniels walked around the car's body and leaned toward the rear windshield. Gone! Like I said, you're worrying about the paint and we could have been killed. I need to get to George Strickland. Jones, I should send you the bill for this. Jones looked back up the road. Why don't you send the bill to them? Jones threw his hands up as he paced in front of Strickland's messy desk. How difficult can it be to find a black low rider, George? Strickland looked over his reading glasses. Why didn't Daniels report it? It is his car. Forget Daniels. He's blaming me for the attack. Well, he has a point. George, come on. Somebody tried to kill us both on 32 this afternoon. Strickland removed his reading glasses, stood and leaned over the desk. If they, Matthias, if they had wanted to kill you, they wouldn't have missed. Well, it was close enough for me. Well, I'll run what I can. You didn't get the lowriders tag, did you? No, I didn't get the tag. Maybe you and Daniel should just stay out of this and let Joe just sit there in that cell. I don't know why you think the investigation is just going to fold up if you're not in it. Because I have people like Herbert Lane trying to hinder what I'm doing right now, leaving me stuck with Kip Bosco. I know, I know. Strickland rounded the desk and put his hand on Jones's shoulder. I'll try and track down that low rider. Jones nodded and went over to the water cooler. The cooler burped as he filled one of the small wax cone cups. Well, I'm going to practice, George, and then I'm getting on this full time if I have to. I've never been one to stop you. Maybe you should try and locate Coco. If I could locate Coco, I certainly would. I'll talk to you later, George. Chapter 8 Outside the courthouse, Jones munched on a chicken and lettuce sandwich and cooled his throat with a bubbly carbonated grape drink as he waited for Strickland's return. He chewed the last chicken chunks and removed his cell phone. As he punched in Mrs. O'Toole's number at the Covington Arms, his anger at Kip Bosco intensified. It was as if Bosco were deliberately baiting him. The line to Mrs. O'Toole's apartment rang and she answered the phone as if she were asking a question. He was hoping that Mrs. O'Toole had returned from her Arizona vacation. Mrs. O'Toole speaking. Yes, Mrs. O'Toole, this is Matthias Jones. I'm looking into the murder of Gina Quintel. I'd really love to come to the phone right now, but I will be in Arizona until next week. You'll have to talk to Mr. Montague. Who the hell is Mr. Montague? Jones stared at the phone as Strickland and Phillips walked through the doors. Who are you talking to, Matthias? asked Phillips. Apparently, no one. 
Can either of you guys get me in to see Joe without Kip Bosco all over my case? I haven't talked to Joe since you guys found the knife. Phillips nodded. Sure, get in the car. Kip will be breaking for supper. I didn't think he took a break from stuffing his face. Strickland laughed but turned to Phillips. What's wrong with that guy anyway? Where do I begin, said Phillips, and they got into his unmarked car. He's tight with Herbin and Dom feels responsible. He's a little lapdog, added Jones, as Phillips got behind the wheel and pulled away from the curb and into traffic. You guys think Joe did it, don't you? Phillips looked at Strickland and spoke with Jones through the rearview mirror. Well, it's not looking good, you have to admit that, Matthias. He was there, witnesses saw him there, said Strickland. I would say that he stumbled in there, said Jones, or was called. Strickland turned and leaned over the bench seat. It was his knife. What does Clarence Moody say about all this? You mean that roommate of his? Yeah. Well, he's very articulate. He claimed he knew that Joe owned a knife. You believe him, George? Strickland threw up his arms. Who the hell knows? Using your logic, anyone could have wielded that knife, said Phillips. Joe's a popular kid. Only Moody and Resnick had tiffs with him. Jones pointed forward. Moody did have a tiff because of the exam, but Resnick and Joe just plain hate each other. There has to be a substantial reason for somebody to frame another person for murder, or there must be a need to kill, said Phillips. Exactly. Neither Moody or Resnick were that upset that I'm aware of. But Coco, said Jones. Yes, Coco. He may have people roughed up, but he's not a murderer. I agree. Where is he? Your guess is as good as mine. Coco would threaten Joe Sabota before he did anything to the hooker. Joe didn't do it, said Jones. I just know it. Thias, he's your player. You just can't see it, said Strickland. Plain fact is, he was dating Gina Quintel and not telling anyone about it, not even his roommate. So Moody says, but I still don't trust him. Phillips took the car into a bumpy side alley and emerged behind the large stone police station. Jones thought about all three suspects as he followed Phillips and Strickland out of the car and through a narrow rear entrance door to the police station. Although it was only a side road theory, he thought somebody held back a deeper reason for framing Joe Sabota, and that realization plagued him all the way up the back staircase to Phillips' second floor office. He stepped back when he saw Kip Bosco inside. I think I'm going to be sick. He'll be gone in a second. Jones took out his cell phone. Give me the word when you're ready, Kevin, he said. While he waited for Bosco, he placed a call to Club Max. Go ahead, it's your nickel. It's Matthias Jones. I need to speak with Bruno. Excuse me? I said I want to speak to Bruno. Inside, Phillips propped his briefcase on the desk and said something to Bosco as Strickland got on the office phone. Yeah. Bruno? Yeah. I spoke with Coco briefly. Okay. Is he linked with Gina Quintel's murder? Coco had nothing to do with Gina Quintel's murder, Jones. Did she work for him? No, she didn't. Where's Coco? Use your head, Jones. He ain't within a thousand miles of the cops. The line went dead and Jones stared at the phone. He noticed Kip Bosco entering the elevator as Phillips leaned out his office doorway and motioned him inside. 
We've got a kid downstairs who's scared to death he's going to spend the rest of his life in a penitentiary or worse. If I could just see, Joe. Don't worry, I've got the clearance. Let's get you down there before old Kip eats all his double cheese extra provolone meatball sub with super french fries. Jones smiled and nodded. Then he looked at Strickland on the phone. You going down, George? I'll catch you later, Matthias. Wendell ran out of gas at the beach again. I'm sending Ned out to get him. Sure he did, said Jones, grinning. Phillips patted him on the shoulder and they stepped into the hall. Let's take the stairs. You know Kip will never take the stairs. Jones furrowed his brow as they moved down. He thought how Bruno was not going to readily divulge any information. Then he thought of Joe. Joe should never have gotten involved with Gina Quintel. At the first floor landing, he could hear Joe yelling upstairs. Both Jones and Phillips picked up the pace and ran down the stairs into the concrete corridor. Jones sprinted ahead. Inside the cell, three cops attempted to restrain Joe as he kicked the ceramic urinal. Joe! Joe, it's all right! Jones jumped back as Joe broke the grip of all three men, rushed the bars, and reached through. His eyes were stuck open and bloodshot. Like a rabid animal, he clawed and saliva flew into the hall. Get out! Get out, coach! Get out! The cops pulled him back and finally pinned him on the bed. Joe, I believe you. I don't think you kill Quintel. It's a setup. Don't you understand? Someone set me up with my knife. He yelled from the mattress. I'm going to kill myself. I will. I will. Jones hung on the bars. No, that's not the answer, Joe. They took the knife out of my desk drawer. What about Moody? Did he know about the knife? Asked Jones. Yeah. Yeah, he knew. The cops slowly released him. He assured them he'd sit up quietly. Listen, Clarence may be a jerk and an egghead, but he wouldn't set me up. Well, you don't know that, son. Joe, you found out about an exam somebody gave Moody, added Jones. Ah, that's all over. He was mad at first, but he realizes it was his own fault. Coach, he didn't set me up, I'm telling you. Jones looked at Phillips. Then who did? Joe put his head in his hands. I don't know. I didn't do anything wrong. What about Resnick? Resnick is jealous of me, but we're talking murder. Joe, you were hanging around with a lot of lowlifes in Club Max. Joe looked up and tightened the muscles in his neck and jaw. Listen, I know I shouldn't have been in there, but I fell in love with Gina Quintel. I don't doubt that, and I'm not castigating you. We need to go through this whole thing. The coach is right, Joe, said Phillips. You have to start thinking about everything that happened to you since you met Gina. Everything, no matter how stupid it may seem. No, no, it won't. I'm screwed, I'm screwed. Jones kept his distance. Joe, listen, don't push me, coach. The person who killed Gina is still out there. You're right, said Jones, only ten feet from his star player. Demons dwelled behind Joe's glazed eyes. Jones wondered if he was going to crack. All right, somebody set you up. We need to find out who could have done this. Joe again put his head in his hands. I'm sorry, coach. I didn't mean to get into this mess. I just wish I were dead. Don't talk like that. I'll find the truth, Joe. Joe stood quickly and went over to Jones. He looked up with sunken eyes. 
His once wide grin was now diminished into a downturned, depressed caricature of his self-confidence. The strong, rippling muscles shook in fear as he clutched Jones's hands through the cold bars. Jones swallowed and had no evidence, no side road theories for proving Joe's innocence. What do I tell my parents? Do I tell them I've been shacking up with some hooker for the past month while my grades slipped? They don't have any money. I'm here on a scholarship, you know that. Do I tell them that that knife was my knife, the knife that killed her? You tell them the truth. How did the knife get from your dorm to the sewer? I don't know. Clarence wouldn't let anyone near my desk, and I usually lock the door to the dorm. Well, the plain fact is Moody had access to that knife. Joe released his grip and stepped back. He gazed into a small courtyard and shook his head. Anybody could have taken it out, if you really think about it. If Moody didn't take the knife, who else knew about it? You're not going to like this one, Coach. I already don't like it. People at Club Max. What do you mean, people at Club Max, Joe? Here we go again, Club Max. I'm sick of hearing about people at Club Max. Who at Club Max knew about the knife? All the guys. When we were over there after the first game, Larry Resnick started giving me a hard time. Ah, Larry's name comes up again. I keep it in my desk for protection, not that I can't defend myself. See, I bring it in my knapsack when I go hiking. How did Larry know about the knife? asked Jones. I must have talked to him about it before. I don't remember. Most people in the dorm knew I had the knife. It was no big deal. The surreal sound of Resnick's voice on Gina Quintel's radio repeated through Jones's thoughts. Suspecting one of his players of murder made Jones uneasy. He pictured little Larry Resnick throwing the football at practice yesterday. Larry doesn't like you. But does he have anything specific against you? No. Jones tightened his brow. Yet he knew about the knife. Well, other guys did too. They all razzed me, coach. It was no big deal. You know how it is. I've done it to them too. Larry Resnick, Sully, Davy Costa, they were all wowed. Monique heard. I know she did. Oh, who pray tell is Monique? asked Jones. Gina's friend. Gina's friend. Another hooker? Yeah, I think she's one of Coco's girls. Jones nodded. Well, I bet Bosco knows Monique. Yeah, he does. Bosco is a sleaze. I don't care about him right now. I care about who killed Gina Quintel. If Bosco is holding something back, I'm going to find out. Coach, my point is the whole side of the bar heard them razzing me. You know how it is when guys get drunk? If Bosco won't tell me, I'm going to Club Max. I'm going to talk to this woman, Monique. And the bartender, Bill. I told him about the knife when I got the pitcher of beer. He wanted to know what the noise was all about. That's when I first saw Gina. Jones nodded and then closed his eyes. Joe, everything you're telling me is the truth, right? I told you exactly the way it happened, coach. He said, his eyes filling again. I don't know who would want to kill Gina. I just don't understand it. Neither do I. The problem, Joe, is anybody could have heard you talking about the knife. Even Gina. Now, Gina wouldn't take the knife. She might have mentioned it to someone, and they in turn used it against you. They got the knife. Well, we've got the knife now. It's being tested. Any prints, blood, etc. will show up right away. 
it's my knife and it probably has my fingerprints on it. I know that. You've solved murders before, Coach. You have to help me. I'll do the best I can, Joe. Jones wrote his phone numbers on a notebook page and handed it to Joe. When your parents arrive, have them call me and I'll put them up on campus somewhere. Explain it to my dad. Tell him I didn't do it, please. I will. Joe squeezed Jones's extended hand. I have to get out of here before Bosco comes back. Well, Bosco is in Coco's hip pocket. Really? Jones started to turn but faced Joe again. Do you know anyone who owns a black low rider? No. Why? Nothing. I've had a bad feeling about a low rider moving around the fence during practice yesterday and then following me and Father Gallagher this morning. We better go, Matthias. Pretend I was never here, Joe. Jones gave the thumbs up sign as he left, but he was thinking about Resnick telling everyone about the knife. Apparently it was common knowledge that the knife was locked in the drawer. And Clarence Moody lied. Jones climbed the stairs quickly knowing he would have to visit Club Max and find Gina Quintel's friend. Chapter 10 Jones's cell phone sounded as he left the locker room and squinted in the late afternoon sun. Matthias Jones. Jones! Bosco! I'm surprised you aren't over here conducting my football practice, Kip. His machine gun laugh grated on Jones's battered emotions. Jones hurried toward the mass of red and black football jerseys darting across the upper area beyond the music conservatory. Hey, Kip, what do you know about a black low rider? Why, in the market for a new car? <laughs> Jones stopped and held out the phone. Check it out. Listen, Coachy, I know Coco is out of town. I got a hot tip for you. Be at Club Max, 8 o'clock. I got people who are willing to talk, if you think you can handle it. Some of his players turned as he trudged forward. Everyone on the playing field knew he was about to speak about Joe. Are you going to be there, Kip? Well, I have to check my itinerary. <laughs> Kip, forget it. You won't be disappointed. Why are you helping me? asked Jones. Never looked a gift horse in the ass, Jones. <laughs> Jones stopped again before he reached the team. You'll excuse me, I find it hard to believe that you'd help me. Your choice. <laughs> Bosco's laugh tapered away as he ended the call. I hate that guy, Woozy. You and the rest of the county. Jones stuck the phone in his back pocket and looked at his players. The weather was still cold and he zipped up his windbreaker as the team gathered around. Woozy handed him a steaming cup of coffee, but Bosco bothered him as he faced his players. He took a few moments to organize his thoughts and then spoke in a low monotone. Listen up. Joe Sabota is being held for murder in Prince William. Many of you are aware of his liaisons with a certain woman, the murdered woman, during the past few weeks. I won't make any judgment on Joe's behavior, boys, but I truly think this is a type of behavior that leads directly to the predicament he's in right now. You might have heard rumors about a knife. Those rumors are true. It's Joe's hunting knife. Well, Joe wouldn't kill anybody, shouted Larry Resnick. 
Jones stared at him, wondering why Resnick had needled Joe about the knife at Club Max. He wanted to question Resnick about Joe's locked dormitory drawer. Is he all right, coach? asked Sully. Sully was at Club Max when Joe met Gina Quintel. I just left him this afternoon. He's convinced he was framed. Well, somebody took the knife, shouted Resnick again. Jones's head snapped toward Resnick. Resnick's quick defense of Joe and his ill-timed broadcast the other night sent Jones down the side road. He looked into the younger man's solid blue eyes. Who? Who did it, Larry? Resnick shrugged his shoulders. Well, I, I don't know. After practice, I want to talk to you and with whoever was at Club Max with Joe after our first game. You guys should have known better. Look at the trouble Joe's gotten into. The least of his problems is not playing in the St. Pat's game. Resnick looked away from Jones. Jones knew, despite his own antipathy, he needed Resnick in Saturday's game. Larry Resnick will be taking Joe's place. Coach, I can't take his position, said Resnick. You're starting. Now get some work done out here. Jones clapped his hands. Woozy sidestepped over to him as the team ran across the grass. What's going to happen now? Jones pressed his lips as the team took the field. Well, it doesn't look good on all fronts. It doesn't look good, Woozy. Jones kicked his office door shut. Larry Resnick and Sully sat in two office chairs. With forlorn faces, they looked as if they were just sent to the principal's office. Jones walked slowly from the door and sat on the edge of his desk. Okay, whose idea was it to go to Club Max? Sorry, Coach, but it was my idea, said Resnick. Well, I'm not berating anyone, Larry. I'm just trying to get the story straight. How did he meet the girl? She was at the bar, said Sully. They started talking when he went up to get the beers. Why would she just talk to Joe? She was a hooker, Coach, said Resnick, raising his thin brows. He looked like an easy mark. We all were. She hustled him. Hookers do that, but hookers don't establish long-term relationships. It's bad for business, said Sully. That's why this whole scenario baffles me, said Jones. Doesn't make sense that Gina Quintel would have a relationship with Joe. What do you know about this woman? We know that he spent the night, said Sully. But Joe kept everything that happened later secret. What do you mean, secret? Yeah, we never knew he was involved with her long term. Rusty Keogh didn't know, neither did Davy Costa. What about Clarence Moody? asked Jones. Oh, Clarence is in a fog, said Sully. He wouldn't know. But he is Joe's roommate, added Resnick. Jones turned toward Resnick. Larry, why would you bring up the subject of Joe's hunting knife at Club Max? I, I was just trying to be funny. He slid his teeth along his lip. Then he spoke in a lower voice. See, we had a few beers, coach. Wait, you thought you were being funny by talking about a hunting knife? Yeah, I, uh, yeah. Odd, the knife should be brought up. How did you know about that knife, Larry? Well, everybody did. Clarence said he didn't, said Jones. Sully leaned forward in the folding chair. Coach, Clarence is in another world. The rest of us know about everyone in the dorm. Joe told us that before. We were just giving him a hard time. Unless Moody is lying, what do you think happened? Joe didn't do it, said Sully. 
He's a tough guy on the field, but he just wouldn't knife somebody to death. Joe's afternoon outburst in the cell came flying back into Jones's thoughts. Even if she broke off the relationship, he wouldn't have done it. He must have really loved her, said Resnick. Maybe it was too much for him to take. Who heard you talk about this knife, asked Jones. Lieutenant Phillips asked us that, said Sully. We had no idea it would be used to kill somebody, said Resnick. That's not my question. Who heard you guys talking about the knife? Some people in the other booths might have heard, but we weren't paying attention. We were all buzzed, Coach. I'm sorry, said Resnick. You were buzzed, and now Joe is in a jail cell. Jones pushed his fingers through his hair, and that knife was in his desk drawer. Sully looked at his friend. Clarence must have known about it. No, Joe says Clarence didn't know about it. I happen to think he's lying. Resnick stood and held his temples. Wait, Clarence must have found out because he mentioned the knife being in the desk when the police released the statement about the knife. Yes, but he could have known after the statement was released. Jones circled Clarence Moody's name on his notepad. Any of you boys know a guy named Al? Maybe another boyfriend of Gina Quintel? Jones waited only a few seconds, but nobody answered. Okay, you don't know, Al. What now, coach? asked Sully. Stay out of Club Max, stay out of the investigation, and keep this off the air, Larry. Resnick nodded once as Jones pictured the low rider pulling alongside Daniels' Etzel. We're dealing with killers here. What are you going to do, coach? asked Resnick. I honestly don't know. Chapter 11 Jones downshifted his Jeep into Club Max's parking lot. Long pink neon tubes traced the sleek gray building's fascia board. The neon extended to the flat roof and formed Club Max in huge, funky pink letters on the top. Surrounding the crammed parking lot were twisted junkyard mounds behind a new stockade fence extending to the river. More vinyl-sided three-deckers rose in the distance along a narrow street. A group of grubby bikers entered the club as he panned for the low rider. He walked past the motorcycles. The shiny chrome pipes glistened under the pink neon. A patron of this club could have fired at Daniels's Etzel. He was about to head inside when someone wrapped his shoulder. Adrenaline pierced his gut and he spun around with both fists clenched. Daniels, clipboard and yellow legal pad in hand, stood in a smooth leather coat, white turtleneck, and light pleated slacks. You scared me half to death. Jones, you're a bundle of nerves. Relax. How did you know I'd be here? Kip Bosco. Oh, wonderful. You must act, man, or you're lost. Nothing but energy can save you. This is no time for despair. Daniels raised his index finger and his gray eyes tightened. Sherlock Holmes, five orange pips. Daniels, Holmes was a fictional character. Come on, let's solve the crime, Jones. He gazed at Jones and smiled. I think this will be interesting. If getting killed is interesting, where's your car? Asked Jones, looking around the lot. It's in the shop. I'm not happy about that, Jones. You and your friends. Daniels, I don't know who is chasing us. In his garb, Daniels pranced forward. He looked Jones over as they headed toward the neon line entrance. Chinos in a cable sweater? Yeah, so what? asked Jones. Daniels chuckled as he opened the thick glass door. 
I'm sure the woman will be all over you. I'm not here to pick up women, said Jones loudly. A leggy blonde in a short skirt at the door raised her brow. I mean, I want women. Oh, never mind. Jones remained at the opening. A long bar and dozens of side booths filled with noisy customers reached through the smoke to a set of wood folding doors down back. As Jones moved behind Daniels, one of the blondes smiled. Well, hello. How are you? Well, that depends. Hey, I'm not here to hit on women in this bar. Well, everyone has their own preference. She turned and her hips, compacted in the tight red spandex skirt, snapped from side to side as she glided down the bar. Jones, women don't like men with an attitude. Jones squinted in the heavy smoke. You're one to talk about an attitude, Daniels, and what do you know about women? I say you can get just about anything you want here. Yeah, right. I wonder where Coco is. What was that? Never mind. The loud music muffled Daniels' words. Bright reflections from a convoluted silver sphere spun wildly through the multicolored flashing lights above the crunched dance floor, and a fast-action hockey game, picture colorful and crisp, flashed on the prodigious widescreen television beyond the dance floor. More booths lined both sides of half-open wood-folding doors near a jukebox along the back wall. There's too many people in here, Jones shouted. This place is like a cattle drive. Jones sidetracked along the bar. I can see how my team would come over here after a game. Saboda told me that story. I thought you weren't going to talk to Joe. Don't be bothering Joe, Daniels. Jones maneuvered his way over to a young woman with auburn hair flowing onto her ruffled tuxedo shirt. She mixed drinks while an older man with dyed brown hair, leathery skin, and an open blue shirt worked down the opposite end. The woman turned to Jones and Daniels. What can I get you, gents? Gents? Jones asked, smiling as he turned to Daniels. What would you like, Daniels? Something mild? Maybe some elderberry wine? Give me a whiskey straight up. Jones did a double take. I would have guessed something a little toned down. And you, sir? She flipped two glasses in her hand as if she were a machine ready to start production. Just give me a beer. Straight up in a beer. Say, I'm looking for Bill, said Jones. She squirted the whiskey, and Jones wondered how Daniels' stomach would react to straight liquor. Well, Billy should be in any time. He starts at eight. If you gents want to wait, just make yourself at home. Gents, do we really look that much out of place? She pulled back on the tap and handed a glass to Jones. She lifted the whiskey to Daniels. Daniels covered his mouth as he spoke to Jones. You've got to nix the chinos and sweater routine. That's powerful stuff there, Daniels, said Jones. Nectar of the gods. The bartender smiled. I would say this man is quite familiar with the nectar of the gods. You are very perceptive, my dear, replied Daniels. She smiled again, making suggestive eye contact with Daniels. He moved past Jones and leaned toward the woman. How long have you worked here, my dear? Well, just a few months. Again, she gave him a sultry look. Jones winced and looked down the bar. A crew-cut man with a cement face and marble eyes emerged from behind the folding doors. Well, there's Bill right now. Daniels continued his conversation with the bartender. Daniels is the name. Tell me, you look like a girl who's just been doing this on the side while she finds something more appropriate to her background and education. Jones tried to break in. Daniels, I'm going down to talk to Bill the bartender. 
Daniels looked into the woman's eyes. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Sure. People now waited in line for their drinks. Jones walked away with his beer. Oh, don't mind me, Daniels. Don't mind me. Do what you have to do, Jones. Jones slid down and walked toward Bill. A red tattoo with a pitchfork and horns was etched into his reptilian skin neck. Jones set the beer on the glossy bar and looked to his left, baffled how easily Daniels had coveted the girl's attention. Bill was behind the bar and spoke to an older guy, going off duty. What do you want? Jones turned quickly. You, Bill? Who the hell are you? I'm Matthias Jones. I'm... Ah, Kip told me you'd be coming by. I've been over here before, but I don't know you. I know Coco personally. Coco ain't here. I've never seen you in here. Then again, I work the wee hours. I have a few questions. Right. Bosco says you're a guy who likes to play detective. Listen, pal, there's a kid I care about sitting in a basement cell over there in Prince William. Ah, my heart bleeds for him there, Jones. A slender guy with a crop of blonde hair and in a navy three-piece suit plopped himself between Jones and the bar, and he requested drinks. Bill grabbed a couple of glasses. He slowly mixed two drinks and took another order. Listen, Bill said Jones loudly. I want to know about Gina Quintel. Bill never looked up, but he mixed the next round. Never heard of her. Right. I want to know why Gina Quintel started a relationship with Joe Saboter. I want to know about the knife. He set down the drinks and with money in hand, walked back to Jones. Somebody else called out an order, but he grabbed Jones' shirt. Listen, I told you I don't know nothing, Jones. Now beat it. Where's Coco? He won't take too kindly to you roughing me up. Coco ain't here, I told you that. Jones crushed his thumbs into Bill's wrist. The bartender backed off and shook his wrist. Jones then pushed him back against the wall. I told you, Bill, I got a kid downtown in a cell and he's innocent. You're asking for it. Oh, really? I ain't involved in this. What about Coco? Is he involved in this? Why isn't he around? Bill shook his head. You get a hold of Coco yourself. I ain't saying anything against him. Where is he? No comment. Oh, come on. Well, you heard him, Jones, said Bosco. Bill's eyes were fixed on Jones's clamped hands. He released his grip. I told you, Kip. Let him and Phillips figure out what's going on here. You don't want to get involved in this. Involved in what? Jones, you ain't listening. You don't want to know about things with no relevance to the murder. What things? asked Jones. I only do what I'm told. Listen, I gotta go back to work. Bill backed up, breathed erratically, and adjusted his shirt. He resumed taking orders to Jones's right. Jones shook his head and exhaled. Gina Quintel was at the center of something bigger. He checked the mix of people in the rowdy club. Even if he could find Coco now, getting something of substance was risky. Club Max, what a waste of time. Jones asked the question, who would frame Joe Sabota? Jones has no evidence to indicate Joe was framed. And his friend Coco Stefani is missing, hiding out, with Gina Quintel's background at Club Max at the center of the investigation. And now, Herbert Lane is indicting Joe Sabota for the murder of Gina Quintel. They have Joe's knife. Kip Bosco, the corrupt vice cop, knows more about Quintel's murder than he's saying. And then there's the annoying Sherlock Holmes buff, Daniels, who gets involved in the investigation. 
when someone in the low rider fires shots at Jones and Daniels and Daniels old Etzel, Daniels becomes furious. Back on the football field, the smaller and less talented Larry Resnick takes over at quarterback while Joe Sabota rots in jail. Next time, Jones tracks down Coco while Daniels digs deeper. I'm Fitton, still at Club Max, waiting for a streetcar. Toodle-doo. My books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.